This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. We're truly delighted to have George Packer with us this evening. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with his accomplished work as a journalist, a novelist, and a playwright. Uh, George takes on um, big subjects in, in his books. A Blood of the Liberals, which came out nearly two decades ago, explored American liberalism through the history of George's own activist family. His 2005 book, The Assassin's Gate, which was a Pulitzer finalist, remains a seminal study of how we got into the Iraq war and ensnared in a counterinsurgency campaign that our leaders failed to anticipate. And his work, The Unwinding, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2013, addressed the social, political, and economic upheavals in the United States over the past several decades through the stories of various individuals from across the country. George also is well known, of course, for his articles uh, in The New Yorker, uh, where he was a staff writer for 15 years until the end of last year, and um, and, and and now in The Atlantic, uh, where, where he has just, uh, uh, just uh, started this year. Uh, in his new book, Our Man, George tackles another big subject, uh, the life of Richard Holbrook, one of the most legendary and complex figures in the history of U.S. diplomacy over the past half century. George describes Holbrook as, quote, almost great uh, in the sense that for all his achievements, intelligence, skill, and dominating presence, Holbrook never realized his ambition of becoming Secretary of State and undercut his own potential and his relationships with colleagues, friends, and family through his abrasiveness, bombast, bullying, and egotism. Still, as a subject for a book, Holbrook is great. Indeed, downright Shakespearean. And George, who knew Holbrook, captures him in all his charismatic, ego-maniacal glory, and writes about him with uh, a lot of feeling, uh, a lot of it mixed. George also portrays Holbrook as a metaphor, a metaphor for America's excellence and its excesses, its dizzying lows and highs marked in the past 50 years by Vietnam, the peace of Dayton, and the endless Afghan war, all of which also were important markers in Holbrook's own life. So to read Our Man isn't just to delve into the life of the fascinating, infuriating Holbrook, but to reflect on America's own checkered story during its era of supremacy. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming George Packer. Thanks so much, Bradley, and thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, I think this is my third or fourth time at Politics and Prose, and it's a, always a great store, and there's always a great crowd. So thank you all so much for coming. I'm going to read a bit from the prologue, uh, and then I'm going to talk a bit about the book, and then I'm going to talk to you about the book, and you're going to ask me questions if you have any. Holbrook? Yes, I knew him. I can't get his voice out of my head. I still hear it saying, you haven't read that book? You really need to read it. Saying, I feel, and I hope this doesn't sound too self-satisfied, that in a very difficult situation where nobody has the answer, 
I at least know what the overall situ the overall questions and moving parts are. Saying, gotta go, Hillary's on the line. That voice, calm, nasal, a trace of older New York, a sing-song cadence when he was being playful, but always doing something to you, cajoling, flattering, bullying, seducing, needling, analyzing, one-upping you, applying continuous pressure like a strong underwater current so that by the end of a conversation, even two minutes on the phone, you found yourself far out from where you'd started, unsure how you got there, and mysteriously exhausted. He was six feet one, but seemed bigger. He had long, skinny limbs and a barrel chest and broad, square shoulder bones, on top of which sat his strangely small head and encased within it the sleepless brain. His feet were so far from his trunk that as his body wore down and the blood stopped circulating properly, they swelled up and became marbled red and white like steak. He had special shoes made and carried socks in his leather attache case, sweating through a half a dozen pairs a day, stripping them off on long flights and draping them over his seat pocket in first class, or else cramming used socks next to the classified documents in his briefcase. He wrote his book about ending the war in Bosnia, the place in history that he always craved, though it was never enough, with his feet planted in a Brookstone Shiatsu foot massager. One morning, he showed up late for a meeting in the Secretary of State's suite at the Waldorf Astoria in his stocking feet, shirt untucked and fly half zipped, padding around the room and picking grapes off a fruit basket while Madeleine Albright's furious stare tracked his every move. During a video conference call from the UN mission in New York, his feet were propped up on a chair. While down in the White House Situation Room, their giant distortion completely filled the wall screen and so disrupted the meeting that President Clinton's national security advisor finally ordered a military aide to turn off the video feed. Holbrook put his feet up anywhere in the White House, on other people's desks and coffee tables, for relief and for advantage. Near the end, it seemed as if all his troubles were collecting in his feet. Atrial fibrillation, marital tension, thwarted ambition, conspiring colleagues, hundreds of thousands of air miles, corrupt foreign leaders, a war that would not yield to the relentless force of his will. But at the other extreme from his feet, the ice blue eyes were on perpetual alert. Their light told you that his intelligence was always awake and working. They captured nearly everything and gave almost nothing away. Like one-way mirrors, they looked outward, not inward. I never knew anyone quicker to size up a room, an adversary, a newspaper article, a set of variables in a complex situation, even his own imminent death. The ceaseless appraising told of a manic spirit churning somewhere within the low voice and languid limbs. Once in the 1980s, he was walking down Madison Avenue when an acquaintance passed him and called out, Hi, Dick. 
Holbrook watched the man go by, then turned to his companion. I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> yes, his curly hair never obeyed the comb, and his suit always looked rumpled, and he couldn't stay off the phone or TV, and he kept losing things, and he ate as much food as fast as he could, once slicing open the tip of his nose on a clamshell and bleeding through a pair of cloth napkins. Yes, he was in almost every way a disorderly presence, but his eyes never lost focus. So much thought, so little inwardness. He could not be alone. He might have had to think about himself. Maybe that was something he couldn't afford to do. Leslie Gelb, Holbrook's friend of 45 years and recipient of multiple daily phone calls, would butt into a monologue and ask, what's Obama like? Holbrook would give a brilliant analysis of the president. How do you think you affect Obama? Holbrook had nothing to say. Where did it come from, that blind spot behind his eyes that masked his inner life? It was a great advantage over the rest of us because the propulsion from idea to action was never broken by self-scrutiny. It was also a great vulnerability. And finally, it was fatal. I can hear the voice saying, it's your problem now, not mine. He loved speed. Franz Klammer's fearless downhill run for the gold in 1976 was a feat Holbrook never finished admiring until you almost believed that he had been the one throwing himself into those dangerous turns at Innsbruck. He pedaled his bike straight into a swarming Saigon intersection while talking about the war to a terrified blonde journalist just arrived from Manhattan. He zipped through Paris traffic while lecturing his State Department boss on the status of the Vietnam peace talks. His Humvee careered down the dirt switchbacks of the Mount Igman Road above besieged Sarajevo, chased by the armored personnel carrier with his doomed colleagues. He loved mischief. It made him endless fun to be with and got him into unnecessary trouble. In 1967, he was standing outside Robert McNamara's office on the second floor of the Pentagon. A 26-year-old junior official, hoping to catch the Secretary of Defense on his way in or out for no reason other than self-advancement. A famous colonel was waiting too, a decorated paratrooper just back from Vietnam where Holbrook had known him. Everything about the colonel was pressed and creased. His uniform shirt, his face, his pants carefully tucked into his boots and delicately bloused around the calves. He must have spent the whole morning on them. That looks really beautiful, Holbrook said, and he reached down and yanked a pants leg all the way out of its boot. The colonel started yelling. Holbrook laughed. Back in the Kennedy and Johnson years, when he was elbowing his way into public life, the phrase action intellectuals was hot until Vietnam caught up with it and intellectuals got burned. But that was Holbrook. Ideas mattered to him, but never for their own sake, only if they produced solutions to problems. The only problems worth his time were the biggest, hardest ones. Three fiendish wars. That's what his career came down to. He was almost singular in his eagerness to keep risking it. Having solved Bosnia, he wanted Cyprus, Kosovo, Congo, the Horn of Africa, Tibet, Iran, India, Pakistan, 
and finally Afghanistan. Only the Middle East couldn't tempt him. As the Washington bureaucracy got more cautious, his appetite for conquests grew. Right after his death, Hillary Clinton said, I picture him like Gulliver, tied down by Lilliputians. He loved history so much that he wanted to make it. The phrase great man now sounds anachronistic, but as an inspiration for human striving, maybe we shouldn't throw out the whole idea. He came of age when there was still a place for it, and that place could only be filled by an American. This was just after the war, when the ruined world lay prone and open to the visionary action of figures like Atchison, Kennan, Marshall, and Harriman. They didn't just grab for land and gold like the great men of earlier empires. They built the structures of international order that would endure for three generations, longer than anything ever lasts, and that are only now turning to rubble. These were unsentimental, supremely self-assured, white Protestant men, privileged, you could say, born around the turn of the century, who all knew one another and knew how to get things done. They didn't take a piss without a strategy. Holbrook revered them all and adopted a few as replacement fathers. He wanted to join them at the top and he clawed his way up the slope of an establishment that was crumbling under his crampons. He reached the highest base camp possible, but every assault on the summit failed. He loved books about mountaineers, and in his teens, he climbed the Swiss Alps. He was a romantic. He never realized that he had come too late. You will have heard that he was a monstrous egotist. It's true. It's even worse than you've heard. I'll explain as we go on. He offended countless people, and they didn't forget. And since so many of them swallowed their hurt, after he was gone, it was usually the first thing out of their mouth if his name came up, as it invariably did. How he once told a colleague, I lost more money in the market today than you make in a year. How he bumped an elderly survivor couple from the official American bus to Auschwitz on the 50th anniversary of its liberation, added himself to the delegation alongside Elie Wiesel, and left the weeping couple to beg Polish guards to let them into the camp so they wouldn't miss the ceremony. How he lobbied for the Nobel Peace Prize. That kind of thing, all the time, as if he needed to discharge a surplus of self every few hours to maintain his equilibrium. And the price he paid was very high. He destroyed his first marriage and his closest friendship. His defects of character cost him his dream job as Secretary of State, the position for which his strengths of character eminently qualified him. You can't untangle these things. I used to think that if Holbrook could just be fixed, a dose of self-restraint, a flash of inward light, he could have done anything. But that's an illusion. We are wholly ourselves. If you cut out the destructive element, you would kill the thing that made him almost great. As a member of the class of lesser beings who aspire to a good life, but not a great one, who find the very notion both daunting and distasteful, I can barely fathom the agony of that almost. Think about it, the nonstop schedule, the calculation of every dinner table, the brain that burned all day and night, and the knowledge buried so deep he might have only sensed it as a physical ache 
that he had come up short of his own impossible exaltation. I admired him for that readiness to suffer. His life was full of pleasures, but I never envied it. I'm trying to think what to tell you now that you have me talking. There's too much to say, and it all comes crowding in at once. His ambition, his loyalty, his cruelty, his fragility, his betrayals, his wounds, his wives, his girlfriends, his sons, his lunches. By dying, he stood up a hundred people, including me. He could not be alone. If you're still interested, I can tell you what I know from the beginning. I wasn't one of his close friends, but over the years, I made a study of him. You ask why? Not because he was extraordinary, though he was, and might have rivaled the record of his heroes if he and America had been in their prime together. Not because he was fascinating, though he was. And right this minute, somewhere in the world, 14 people are talking about him. Now and then I might let him speak for himself. That was something he knew how to do. But I won't relate this story for his sake. No, we want to see and feel what happened to America during Holbrook's life. And we can see and feel more clearly by following someone who is almost great, because his quest leads us deeper down the alleyways of power than the usual famous subjects, whom he knew, all of them. And his boisterous struggling lays open more human truths than the composed annals of the great. This was what Les Gelb must have meant when he said, just after his friend's death, Far better to write a novel about Richard C. Holbrook than a biography, let alone an obituary. What's called the American century was really just a little more than half a century, and that was the span of Holbrook's life. It began with the Second World War and the creative burst that followed the United Nations, the Atlantic Alliance, containment, the free world, and it went through dizzying lows and highs until it expired the day before yesterday. The thing that brings on doom to great powers and great men, is it simple hubris or decadence and squander, a kind of inattention, loss of faith, or just the passage of years? At some point, that thing set in. And so we are talking about an age gone by. It wasn't a golden age. There was plenty of folly and wrong, but I already miss it. The best about us was inseparable from the worst. Our feeling that we could do anything gave us the Marshall Plan and Vietnam, the peace at Dayton, and the endless Afghan war. Our confidence and energy, our reach and grasp, our excess and blindness, they were not so different from Holbrook's. He was our man. That's the reason to tell you this story. That's why I can't get his voice out of my head. That's the opening of the book. So a few weeks after Holbrook died in December 2010, his widow gave me his papers. No strings attached. That was the deal. And within a week, these wide, tall, black filing cabinets were crowding my home office and leaving me so little room that I could hardly even open my door and couldn't get at some of my favorite books, which felt like Holbrook had moved in on me and was taking over. And what was in those filing cabinets were his papers, his letters, his diaries, scraps of notes, um, 
flattering letters to Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, and not so flattering letters to some of his rivals. I spent a year or two going through them, and all the while I felt that Holbrook was watching me. He was saying, who are you to be reading my diaries, and what the hell is taking you so long? And the problem, what was taking so long, was that I did not know how to write the book. I was working on another book at the time, which Bradley mentioned, The Unwinding. And that was not a, a conventional nonfiction book. I was trying to tell the story of the decline of American democracy over the past few decades. And to do it, I thought I had to turn to the style and the structure of fiction. And some instinct told me that to write a book about a character as big and complex as Richard Holbrook and a subject as vast as the end of the American century, you might call it the unwinding abroad, would also need to be unconventional. So one day I was driving on I-84 in Connecticut and I heard a voice say, Holbrook, yes, I knew him, which you heard me read earlier. This voice came out of nowhere and I didn't know whose it was or what it meant, but I knew that I liked it and that I should follow it, that that might be the way to get through this huge story rather than a dull, dutiful, dry, conventional biography. It would be like telling a yarn, a really long yarn about Richard Holbrook. I wanted my narrator, who I didn't think of as being quite myself, this voice that, I just, that you just heard is not quite me. It's someone older than me and maybe wiser than me and more experienced and someone who somehow just knew this story. I wasn't going to reveal all of my research and my, the, the, the papers that I've been spending years reading through or the 250 interviews that I did, including with some people in this room. I just would tell the story as a story. There'd be no potted history lessons. There'd be brief asides. I wanted that kind of freedom because otherwise I was honestly afraid of boring the reader. So I, what I wanted was someone who had somehow been an eyewitness to the whole saga. You don't really know who it is or how the narrator knows all this. You just know that he's telling you the story. And I felt that Holbrook demanded a, a book like that and a kind of storytelling like that because the cliche larger than life doesn't begin to describe him. And the aloof, neutral, sort of um, above it all stance of a typical biographer would not be able to do him justice. His achievements were big, his failings were big, and his abiding value was important to me. And it could only be brought to life through the eyes of a narrator who had seen a span of history and had a keenly personal knowledge of America's dreams and defeats, its battles with itself, and who could evoke Holbrook as the poignant agent of those dreams, embodying the spirit of an era. So what do I mean by larger than life? Well, first there was his career. He served under every Democratic president from Kennedy to Obama. He was, as Hillary Clinton told me, the zealot of American foreign policy. He showed up everywhere. He always seemed to be in the middle of the action. Here he is kind of clowning in South Vietnam in 1963. That was his first post with the State Department. He was 22 years old. He was the top American civilian 
in a province of the Mekong Delta that was the epicenter of the war at that point. Just when things were starting to go wrong and the South Vietnamese government was starting to collapse. So Holbrook was doing what is now called counterinsurgency. He was on the civilian side. He was handing out bulgur wheat and building materials and working with local government and trying to get the local self-defense forces to defend themselves. But really, this was the beginning of what he later called a sequence of disillusionment. The first thing he noticed was that the reports being sent to Saigon and Washington were all wrong. They were making up statistics that didn't exist. And rather than doing what most ambitious go along to get along diplomats at the age of 22 would do, he contradicted them and began sending different reports and telling his superiors that things were going badly in the Mekong Delta. And this was a crucial moment for him because I think what he learned was you have to see for yourself. You have to be on the ground. You can't believe the filtered cables that make their way up to the higher levels of power. It's better just to see and know for yourself, which is why he loved journalists throughout his life and had actually wanted to be one until the New York Times refused to give him a job. The Foreign Service gave him a job. He became a diplomat instead of a journalist. If it had been the other way around, maybe we'd never have heard of him or maybe there would be a book about Richard Holbrook, a journalist. Um, he also began to impress his betters in Saigon. Here he is playing tennis with Maxwell Taylor. There was a hell of a lot of tennis going on. I kept running into accounts of tennis matches. He recorded the scores meticulously in his diaries um, and also the opponents and how important they were. And he sort of used tennis as a, as a mode of advancement. He was ingratiating himself with Henry Cabot Lodge and William Westmoreland and Maxwell Taylor and eventually with Bobby Kennedy back in Washington by playing tennis with them and usually by beating them. He was pretty good. Um, but he also impressed them by telling them what he thought was the truth. He did not, he gave them unvarnished views of how badly the war was going and how our firepower was overwhelming and creating more enemies than it was killing Viet Cong and why we needed a more thoughtful and nuanced approach to counterinsurgency. It took him four years to realize the war itself was unwinnable, which seems like a very long time. But when you're inside the government, these things take a long time because you are trying to make it work. You're not thinking, how can we just get out of this? So that, that I think, is actually a remarkable thing that he, by 1967, had realized that the war was unwinnable. He got himself... Uh, he, he went back to Washington and continued rising. Here he is with Lyndon Johnson. Um, and then he got himself appointed to the Paris peace talks under his hero, Avril Harriman. And he did that by mingling at Georgetown dinner parties and salons with uh, Harriman and Dean Acheson and the other legends he'd grown up with. Um, those peace talks failed. Holbrook left government for a few years. Here he is on the phone in the 70s, as you can tell, um, at Foreign Policy Magazine, which he edited for a few years. 
He told a girlfriend during this time because he had broken up his marriage and gone off to be a single man in Washington in the 70s. He told a girlfriend that he wanted to be the next Henry Kissinger. And this girlfriend actually knew Henry Kissinger because her stepfather was Joseph Alsop and she despised Kissinger and broke up with Holbrook on the spot. Um, he thought Kissinger was cynical and amoral, um, but he also admired and envied him. And Kissinger, for his part, once called Holbrook the most viperous man I know around this town, which is, it's really something coming from Henry Kissinger. Um, so at the age of 35, he became the youngest assistant secretary of state for East Asia under Jimmy Carter. He participated in the normalization of relations with China, which was led by Zbigniew Brzezinski, who's in the middle of this photo at the Great Wall of China. You can see that Brzezinski looks like he might have just had a really good breakfast. And what he had for breakfast was Richard Holbrook, who is off to the side looking pretty grim because they were in a mortal bureaucratic battle. And throughout the story, I keep finding that government work seems more like kickboxing or like um, some blood sport because Holbrook was in these fights for his life over and over again. Brzezinski knew that Holbrook had tried to get Jimmy Carter not to appoint him. So Brzezinski spent four years trying to get Richard Holbrook fired. He left him out of the motorcades in Beijing, out of the meetings. He did all the things that a skillful bureaucrat does to try to destroy an opponent. And you can sort of see the results in this picture. Um, under President Clinton, he became the Assistant Secretary of State for Europe. So you see, he's not exactly rising through the bureaucracies. It's a flat line. And yet he's becoming more better known and more powerful than people well above him. And that was sheer force of character and also, I would say, of ability. He focused on Bosnia as the most important problem facing the United States in that post-Cold War period. And more than anyone else in the Clinton administration was responsible for negotiating the end of that war uh, in the peace talks at Dayton, which was his, his real achievement, a historic achievement, and ended the worst slaughter in Europe since World War II. Um, as Clinton's ambassador to the UN, he saved the organization in a way by getting the Republican Congress to release a billion dollars in unpaid American dues. And then at the end of his career and the end of his life, he became President Obama's man on Afghanistan and tried to find a way to end that war by talking to the enemy. But instead, he made enemies in Washington, lots of them, powerful enemies. And you can tell from the picture that Barack Obama doesn't seem to be flowing with affection for Holbrook, nor does Joe Biden. He and Holbrook are, seem to be faced off in some kind of staring duel. They agreed about almost everything throughout their careers, which means, of course, that they deeply disliked each other. Um, Obama disliked Holbrook intensely. Maybe intensely is too strong because Obama was perhaps too detached for that intensity. But there was almost a physical revulsion. Like 
just he didn't want to be around him. Holbrook flattered him. He lectured him. He condescended to him. He was bombastic. I've got these terrible scenes where Holbrook is reading at these situation room meetings from his notes and the notes go on and on and on like the first draft of his memoirs. And Obama is looking around at the principals at the table saying, literally, who talks this way? Um, Holbrook could not understand what was wrong. Why doesn't the president like me? This was his that fatal blind spot about himself. He could not understand what he was doing to Obama to make Obama dislike him so much that Obama didn't include him on presidential trips to Kabul, which was Holbrook's whole job. Um, and several times, well, let's say at least twice, Hillary Clinton saved his job. She was his one supporter in the Obama administration. And they had a long and loyal relationship. They really did respect and like each other. I'd say they even loved each other. And she protected and defended him partly out of loyalty, but partly because she needed him. She needed his, his experience and his strategic intelligence. Um, but it was because he depended so much on her at the end that he could not tell Obama and the others what he really thought of the war because it was, Hillary Clinton was a hawk on Afghanistan. And if Holbrook had disagreed with Hillary in front of Obama and his cabinet, it would have been the end of him. So he kind of had to keep it to himself. Even the end of his life was a drama. His aorta burst during a meeting in the office of Hillary Clinton, the office he had yearned and strived for all his life. So he died in action. And I think he kind of died of a broken heart. And then there was his character. He was flamboyant. He was maddening. He was mesmerizing. He wanted to swallow life whole. He made a lot of money on Wall Street and he spent it profligately. He was a bit of a star fucker. He had a seven year relationship with Diane Sawyer who finally was so exhausted that she dumped him for Mike Nichols. He, as UN ambassador, he hung out with NBA stars, with the Dalai Lama, and you can't quite tell, but he's poking his finger in the Dalai Lama's chest here and making a point with movie stars. Um, he loved adventure. He ate too much. He saw more movies than most of us have ever heard of, and he wasn't a snob about it. His favorite was There's Something About Mary. He had lots of affairs. He was a sexist who only really revealed himself to women. His life reminds me of those protagonists in the, the 19th century novels making their way up through the imperial center and trying to prevail against an adversarial world. He never made it to the top. He never achieved all that he thought he could. And the main reason was himself. Um, Barney Rubin, who worked for him, said to me, I always thought he was a kind of comic villain, but he turned out to be a tragic hero, which I think is a wonderful way to see Holbrook. There is a tragic comedy in this whole story. He had egotism and idealism in immense quantities. The egotism made people detest him and the idealism made people revere him. And he was one of the few Americans at the top of power who really cared about the rest of the world and about obscure people in faraway places who were suffering. He was the son 
of Jewish refugees from Hitler and Stalin, and he had a lifelong passion for humanitarian causes. And I think he probably never listened to anyone as carefully as he listened to, say, a Pakistani refugee. He would give that person more of his real attention than he would give David Petraeus. <clears throat> he was critical of the militarization of our foreign policy beginning all the way back in Vietnam. But he also believed that America was a force basically for good. And that like it or not, Americans had to get involved, had to be in the lead or no one else would. And the problems in, in faraway places would eventually become our problems. The results were as often harmful as helpful. This is a story that begins in Vietnam and ends in Afghanistan. <clears throat> I'm going to skip a bit. This is Tony Lake, who is his friend turned enemy. And that's a big subplot of the book that I will leave it to you to, to learn more about if you want to read the book. Um, they had an intense uh, relationship that um, eventually deteriorated. He was a diplomat, but this isn't primarily a book about foreign policy. As Bradley said, it's a portrait of an era of American life, an era when America thought of itself as leader of the free world. And Holbrook captures that. He embodies it, but he also is able to articulate it. And I want to play you a bit of his audio diary. The sound quality is terrible, but I hope you can hear it um, from the very end of his life. So his voice is starting to break. He's just gone to see the revival of South Pacific at Lincoln Center. Uh, Monday, August 23rd, 7 a.m. Yesterday, the 22nd, Tati and I went to the final performance of the revival of South Pacific at Lincoln Center with Frank Rich and Alex Witchell and Linda Janklow. It was a fantastic night, afternoon in the theater, maybe the best ever. Uh, a fantastic production, which I found, found immensely moving. Men were crying, myself included. I tried to understand why that show had such an enormous emotional impact on us. For me, it was the combination of the beauty of the show and its music, and the capturing in that show of so many moments in American history. The show itself, opening in New York and the height of New York's greatness, 1949. The theme, Americans at war in a distant land or islands in the South Pacific. The sense of loss of American optimism and, and our feeling that we could do anything. The contrast with today. It was very powerful, and I kept thinking of where we were today, our nation, our lack of confidence in our own ability to lead compared to where we were in 1949 when it came out, evoking it here only five years or seven years earlier when we had gone to the most distant corners of the globe, 
save civilization were the last words. And that's Holbrook at the end of his life. And like him, the American century combined heroic and destructive impulses, nobility and hubris, the sense that, as he said, we could do anything and the impulse to do everything. But I really only understood what my book was about six years after he died on election night in 2016, when I suddenly realized that the era he embodied was over, that we were entering something new, something diminished. And I suddenly understood that what I was writing was now history. Thank you. Any questions? It's in the blue shirt there. Thank you. Uh, my name's Don Kirsch. I was Dick Holbrook's DCM in Bonn for a year, which you, I guess, and I worked for him in, in the EU, in European Bureau. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you about is ambition clearly uh, was to be Secretary of State, and uh, he kind of did himself in for many of these reasons, but he certainly was able, in my judgment, to make very good friends with the Clintons, and had Hillary won in 2008, do you think he would have gotten the job? So he, he certainly made everybody else right. think that way. I would add he's the worst boss I ever worked for, but in uh, 38 <laughs> years of the Foreign Service. Yeah. And I was in, had been in the Marines, I think he would have had a bad end in the Marine Corps. He would have been, been dishonorably officer. discharged, maybe. I mean, I, I have a bit about the Bond years, but it's a short yeah. passage, and I'm kind of glad I didn't interview you because I just didn't have room for one more <laughs> terrible story about him. Um, I have a couple of good ones, too. But there uh, there's yeah. some good ones, too. Um, well, he made people think he was going to get it in 2000 and 2004 as well. Um, and I'm quite sure he would not have in either of those years. In 96, he came close, but Clinton passed him up for Madeleine Albright, uh, partly because Hillary Clinton wanted her so much. Um, I think the chances are pretty good in 2008, but nobody can be sure. And Hillary Clinton's aide, Jake Sullivan, told me, you know, don't be so sure at all. You know, those decisions are... Uh, held closely. They're not made until after the election. And maybe she would have appointed Barack Obama secretary, you know, something like that. So it's it's not at all certain, but I think that was probably his best shot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yes. Thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah. I'm excited to read it. Um, I read Unwinding actually right after uh, the current president's election. And I found it very prescient, a lot of the things that you highlighted and almost like alarm bells for what we ended up facing. And so I, it sounds a lot like this is a little bit in conversation with the unwinding, one looking domestic, the other international. Yeah. And yeah. my question is, what warnings do mm. you have here? Wow. <laughs> you know, that. thank you for that, because I do think that they have something to do with each other, both stylistically, because they're both unconventional, but also in, in the portrait of America during these past decades, this time America in the world. Um, I didn't see Trump coming, but I did have an eye on the landscape that produced Trump. So in some ways, he was not a surprise to yeah. me. Um, what I, I'm a terrible crystal ball reader, but I think what we're in now is an era where once the idea of our leadership no longer appeals to either the right or the left, it really isn't out there anymore. The, the Democrats are not talking about foreign policy at all. 
It's as if they won't be responsible for it if they get elected president. And the Republicans are happy to have a president who is trashing alliances and flirting with dictators and possibly getting us into a war. Um, I think we're becoming more like just another great power, the great power, but another great power without any higher ambition to create a structure in which all countries can somehow benefit. Obviously, that structure didn't work all the time or much of the time for a lot of countries, but the alternative does seem to me to be darker. Yeah. And I don't think that there's another alternative where we become an entirely altruistic, nice, um, generous country of the dreams of progressives because that's an NGO. That's not a country. So I, I, I'm not sanguine about where things are going. I mean, this is not a hagiography, as you can tell, and nor is it a misty-eyed view of the American century. Um, it begins in Vietnam. It ends in Afghanistan. But in between, some good things happen. Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay. Now Barney Rubin is going to contradict everything I just said. Hey, Barney. <laughs> Not at all. Hi. Um, Can I introduce you? This is the country's leading expert on Afghan politics and Holbrook's main conduit to the talks with the Taliban that did not happen while Holbrook was alive. Well, another way of putting it is that I am a former senior advisor to Richard Holbrook. <laughs> I hate that. The way irony of, of which title can be appreciated only by those who have enjoyed it. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> well, first, I just wanted to. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to spend some time with someone whom Holbrook would have liked to talk to, but he missed his chance. And that was Javad Zarif, the uh, foreign minister of Iran, and he was trying to diagnose uh, America's problem. And he said, you know, we Iranians, we've been around for thousands of years. He said, you know, we used to be an empire. We ruled the whole world. But now we don't. And you have to get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> get used to it. Maybe that's what I should have called my book. Yeah. But here's something. As I was reading the book, a question that I wanted to ask you Hmm. which you kind of answered in this, but I'm going to say a little more, was where did you get the voice? Ah. Where did you get the idea of talking to the reader in the second person? Right, right. And as you recounted that, suddenly I thought of something. And I just, it's not the question you're expecting from me, but I just want to ask you. A I prefer this question. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought you sounded like Nick Carrington in The Great Gatsby. Uh, Nick Carraway. Carraway, sorry, ah, Carraway okay. in, in, the, in The Great Gatsby. It's that, it's that kind of a voice. You don't quite remember who, who Nick was at the end of it, but his voice is the story in a way. So thank you. Here's the comment. I'm on. just going to pocket that one. Um, <laughs> the other literary analogy I had in my head, Barney, was Marlowe, who was Conrad's narrator in Heart of Darkness and Lord Jim and other books, and a, a seaman and a yarn spinner. And I just wanted it to be an informal, direct, lively, highly opinionated voice that could say all kinds of things that a normal biographer would not say. For example, the first chapter begins, do you mind if we hurry through the early years? Because I just did not want to write three chapters about his high school education. And I don't think you wanted to read that. And I can tell you a lot of readers 
read that line and just were so happy. Um, <clears throat> so it just gave me freedom to make this, I hope, an enjoyable and engaging story. Jeremy Pam, another friend of mine and a civilian vet, as well as a former military officer who I first met in Iraq. Hi. Hi. Uh, George, thanks for this. Um, as I've read you on Holbrook and as I've listened to you talk about Holbrook tonight, I have a vivid image of a kind of three-way war uh, within him. Mm. Uh, on the one hand, uh, his critical intelligence, uh, or perhaps you could say uh, the critical idealism that uh, led him to uh, spend years of his life in Vietnam, but also to be a contrarian on Vietnam, um, and later led him to observe that uh, sometimes the smartest man in the room is not the the right one. Yeah. Uh, so that's on the one hand. On the second hand, there's the personal egotism, yep. which you've described uh, eloquently. And the third is a kind of national egotism, um, or perhaps uh, what William Fulbright described as the arrogance of power. Mm. And so I have two questions, uh, if one accepts that kind of three-way war. Mm -hmm. First, was the outcome of it uh, preordained uh, that the personal egotism and the national egotism would triumph over the critical mm. idealism? Um, and secondly, is there some kind of larger metaphor for the evolution of America's role in the world? Well, I, I like your three-way war, but I don't think there was ever a resolution to it because they were always in battle with each other. And in Bosnia, you could say there was an arrogance of power, but it took arrogance of power to make the decisions that finally broke through the European stalemate and ended the war. So I don't think that that's an entirely negative thing. Um, and at the end, his critical I don't remember the phrase you used, but critical intelligence or whatever, was very alive on Afghanistan. He was thinking about it all the time. His own talents were not what they should have been. He was blundering. He was making enemies. He got Hamid Karzai so suspicious of Holbrook's attempts to get rid of him that Karzai outmaneuvered Holbrook and pretty much made him a persona non grata. Um, and he lost Obama from the start, as I said. So I don't know that it was overweening arrogance so much as fading powers and um, perhaps the failures of both Holbrook and Obama, because I have some criticism of Obama in this book, too. Um, so I think the, the war was still going on up to the last minute of his life. But I like the I like the image. Is there a metaphor for American power in the world? Of course. Of course, I just don't know how it all resolves itself, and I don't know what is foreordained, because as soon as you think you've learned a lesson and try to apply that lesson, it doesn't work, because the situation is new, history has moved on, the country is new. There are a lot of people who thought Bosnia was Vietnam, including Bill Clinton, and that led to three years of horror in Europe. Holbrook somehow decided Bosnia was not Vietnam. He had not been so traumatized by Vietnam that he saw everything as Vietnam. And I think he was more right than the others. So how do you, the problem is we think that we have a general American template for everything. 
we're either going to be this or that. But all these countries are themselves and resist our designs. And some of them resist them in one direction and others in another. And I am just glad I'm not a foreign policy maker. <laughs> Thanks. Anyone else have a question? Yes. Thank you for being here tonight. Um, anytime that you read about or hear about Holbrook, you really do get the sense that he's sort of a character a generation removed from the personalities he'd fit in with. Atchison, the Harrimans, both of them, uh, Joe Alsop. Do you think something has changed in our politics, in our national culture, that discourages the emergence of personalities like that? Mm. And if so, or maybe I shouldn't say the emergence, but the success. Uh huh. Um, and if so, does it have anything to do with the unwinding, with the the story you tell on the international stage in this book? That is such a good question. I actually have to think about it. Um, <clears throat> one thing that happened is the establishment collapsed after Vietnam, so there were no more wise men whispering into the ear of presidents and then heading back to their investment bank to make some money. That was over. Um, they were all from the same schools. They knew each other. That kind of gave them an advantage. They had an assumed right to power. They had a sense of responsibility. And then they made some catastrophic mistakes, namely Vietnam. Um, once the establishment was gone, the characters who filled the, the vacuum were these big, boisterous, self-promoting, um, ambitious, nakedly ambitious, the next generation. Zbigniew Brzezinski, Henry Kissinger, and I would say Richard Holbrook. Um, today, diplomacy is so diminished that it's hard to imagine a Shakespearean character emerging from the ranks of the State Department. I mean, I, who's the Deputy Secretary of State? Like. <laughs> Do we know? Well, you'd never have a, a Dean Acheson openly referring to his critics as the attack of the primitives anymore, you know, or that that's the other thing that people get so penalized for telling the truth that no one wants to say anything real. And so everything is turned by a, some blender into smooth, meaningless talk. And that was something Holbrook really resisted. He urged his staff in his last years at the Afghanistan-Pakistan office to, mm -hmm. to read Orwell. He made them read politics in the English language so that they would write clear, forceful prose. And he spoke clear, forceful prose and wrote it himself. And um, it's punished because you can't be too clear about your meaning or someone is going to catch you and you will lose the bureaucratic battle. So I think that's the other thing is partly because of the press and the gotcha politics, partly because of the polarization where one side is truly out to destroy the other side on foreign policy as much as domestic. Um, and the final thing, and this gets to the unwinding, is the loss of faith on the part of the public in our elites so that a Holbrook emerges and seems to have these talents, but he's also, as I say in the book, 
a Wall Street guy. He makes a ton of money. He owns all these houses. He's kind of cutting corners in his business career. He is on the board of AIG. He is getting sweetheart loans from Countrywide Financial. In many ways, he's embodying what went wrong with the elites as well as what a great elite is. And after 2008, I don't think the, the public, the ordinary American public, really had wanted to find someone like Holbrook who they could embrace because they just distrusted them all. And that works against someone like him, too. That's where the unwinding comes in. So yeah. thanks for being here. Uh, you're a fine writer, and that's a good reason to read the book thanks. in and of itself. And the, the metaphor with the end of the American century is a good thing to read, uh, is a good thing to focus on as well. My opinion with Holbrook is that he was uh, successful in some things, but a failure in most things. Uh, I thought he was a professional opportunist and a bit of a bumptious gas bag. We um, can talk about his success in Bosnia, but a year before he got involved in Bosnia in the early Clinton administration, he was defending non-interventionism, right? So that was, I mean, he... No, no, no absolutely. I sat across the table from him uh, he, when he came back from Germany as ambassador. He was... He, he, was, he was pushing hard, I mean... Read the book, and his diaries are available now at Princeton University. Everything is now open to the public. His diaries, at least his diaries, make it clear that he was trying to find a way to get the State Department to push the White House to take it to the Serbs. He may not have succeeded because he had Warren Christopher here, he had Tony Lake here, and he had Bill Clinton here, and none of them were on board with that so but he, he was anyway. certainly following the party line in the uh in the early years my experience okay of, of uh debating with him uh my question is yeah. i can tell you what kissinger's worldview is and i can tell you even what brzezinski's worldview is could you summarize what his worldview was i mean i have a passage that tries to describe it i won't be able to find it quickly enough to quote it Just but basically it's that we have uh that our power gives us a responsibility to, to lead where we can and to be involved where we can, not necessarily with military force, but to be involved early and with all the tools of our power or else problems that we don't think much about, like Bosnia, which really didn't affect us in any direct way, will eventually affect us. And no one else is going to fill that role. You can critique that. That's very open to critique. Kissinger critiqued it a lot. He didn't think Bosnia was worth anything. Yeah. But um, that would be Holbrook's worldview. Thank you very thank much. You, yeah. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. My question is about uh, another book, if I hope you don't mind. Uh, about two years ago, I was loaned a copy of Clark Clifford's memoir and uh, found it quite fascinating because I arrived in Washington in July 1949, right out of college. Mm. And of course, it covered a great deal of the, and I was working on the Hill. And I, anyway, I had a lot of mutual interest in the book. I happened to mention it not long after that at a round table luncheon in one of the clubs here. And a guy across the, across the table said, well, of course, Dick Holbrook wrote the book. And that wasn't hard to believe, but I wonder, they always seemed like an odd couple to me, and I wonder if yeah. his papers and what you know revealed why Holbrook took on that assignment. It's a great question. He was on Wall Street at the time, but he was actually about to get fired because he was no longer, he, he was never interested in Wall Street. He was interested in making money, and <clears throat> he just hadn't produced enough. 
And it was fortuitous that Clifford asked him to work with him on this. They knew each other from the Johnson years, from the Carter years, from Holbrook's nonstop networking and schmoozing in Georgetown. Holbrook saw Clifford as the epitome of the WASP establishment. And he once said to someone else, Holbrook was Jewish, although he either was not aware of that or was <laughs> intent on <laughs> not talking about it because it, it never turned up until he became ambassador to Germany. But he envied the WASP establishment. He also knew he could never really be part of it. But he had a fascination for the people who came to Washington when you did and who, as he saw it, did great things in the creation of the post-war order. And Clifford was the last surviving member and had that unbelievably smooth, whispery voice and <clears throat> had this style that Holbrook wanted. He once was at a party with one of his 70s girlfriends and he, Cl Clifford came into the room and he introduced the girlfriend to Clifford and the, Clifford spent the next half hour talking to the girlfriend and asking her questions. And she was raving about him afterward, about what a wonderful man he was. And Holbrook took her by the shoulders and said, how does he do it? <laughs> like, I wanna learn, I wanna learn. But, but Holbrook could not be Clifford, partly because he was an outsider, a Jew, a public high school boy. Uh, and he came later, he came, I think, too late. The establishment was over, but I think he so admired it and envied it that he wanted to be part of that project. And he did write that book. He, I have all these tapes in which he's interviewing Clark Clifford for his stories. And I have a, a bit in my book about that, but he, Holbrook wrote it. Mm. Well, okay. thank you. Thank Thanks. You. Yeah, one more. Thank you for your courage and your success in undertaking such a complex <laughs> man in such complex times. It's a minefield, I can tell you. <laughs> really, really yeah. done. Uh, uh, my wife and I first got to, to know Dick when he was a provincial representative, and he totally let, he and Tony- In Lake, Vietnam, yeah. yeah. Right, would come to lunch, and we got their bleak outlook on the, on the prospects of that, of that situation. Uh, and then later, I was one of Dick's deputies in, um, in, in state, Sorry, sir. What's your name? Oh, Erland Hagenbotham. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've and, seen your name in his papers. Um, <laughs> so, with Dick... Only good things. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with Dick, you didn't want to get on his schedule. It was too important for him to spend his time as he should. So, we developed the routine. I would meet him at the elevator on the sixth floor. And by the time we got to the motor pool in the basement, I was able to give him the issue and get a, get a decision. And so it was a, a very good illustration of his decisive capabilities. And of your skill in, in handling him. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming, everybody. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.